When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he, might, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to see you. Can we give a big old thank you to our worship leaders? Because that was incredible. We're so thankful for you guys. Well, it's great to see you again. We, are been, we have been in this series on the kingdom of God in the book of Matthew. So the second half of the book of Matthew is all about the kingdom of God. And it's in our passage today that Jesus describes how he's going to bring the kingdom of God into our world. And the way he's going to do that is through the church. So as soon as Jesus begins talking about the kingdom, he, he begins talking about the church. And if you think about it, every Every great leader, every great historical figure has had one, one masterpiece, one gift that they've left mankind. And so uh, Isaac Newton left us with an, uh, an awareness of the sense of gravity and the laws of motion. Einstein gave us the theory of relativity. Uh, Caesar built Rome, an entire city and, and empire after himself. Aristotle left us all these writings and teachings about uh, his philosophies. Every great religious teacher for the most part, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, they left all these volumes of their teaching to clarify what they believed and how their followers should believe and should act behind them. And so the question is, what was Jesus's one great masterpiece? What has he left our world? What was his one great contribution to the future? As far as we know, Jesus never wrote anything. The only time we see him writing is in the sand, and we have no idea what it was. We don't know that he actually built anything. He was a carpenter. According to Mel Gibson's movie, he invented the tall table. Do you remember that scene? It's like the tall table. 
That was Jesus? That seems possible, honestly. That seems like it could be. But he didn't found any universities or create any, any cities or construct any temples. His one great masterpiece that he left behind for us is the church. The thing that he left on earth to, to follow him and to, to proclaim his name for, for all of eternity or at least until he returns, it's the church. The church is Jesus' grand masterpiece. Now, if you're like me, the church always feels like a masterpiece, right? You wake up every Sunday morning, you're trying to figure out what to wear. Did I wear this last week? Did I wear this every Sunday? You're trying to find your kids' clothes if you have kids. You're trying to get coffee made. You're trying to get out the door because you know you're supposed to be here at 9.50 to 9.55. You all know that, right? You're always here at 9.50, 9.55. No one's ever late, which is great. But then you're trying to get here, there's traffic, there's ice, you've got to scrape off your car, everything's more stressful than it should be. You finally get here, if you have kids, your kids are going crazy, you're trying to find coffee, the coffee maybe isn't ready yet, we've had a couple times where the coffee maker didn't work. You walk in here and you're like, it feels like 39 degrees in here, because it was 39 degrees in here a couple of weeks ago. You're seeing the same people you just saw a couple of weeks ago, and there's maybe somebody you're not really looking forward to seeing. You get your kids finally checked in and released, and you're coming in here, and it's like 10:15 somehow, and we're getting started. You're like, that song, again, I don't like that song. My church used to not play songs like this. It was, I like the music more at the other place. And then the preacher gets up, and you're like, how long is this going to last? And then there's communion. You're looking at the guy in front of you. He dips his entire fingers in the wine. You're like, I've seen those fingernails. Don't make me go after you. Finally, there's another song. You're like, I'm standing. Do I stand or do I sit? Do I read the underlined portions? I can't remember. You get to the doxology, and you're packing up already. You've got one hand up, and you're packing up your things over here. You're like, I just need to get out of here, but now I've got to figure out what I'm going to do for lunch and the rest of my day. And that's Sunday experience. That's our experience of the church. This is Jesus' masterpiece, like for real. And it's okay to think that. I'm a pastor and I think that. It's like, this is it. This is what Jesus left us with. 2,000 years of this kind of church. Every, everything we know, everything we've seen in the book of Matthew about the kingdom of God is that it's upside down. It's backwards. It's inside out. And the reality is that it's not really upside down, but it's our broken world that's upside down. And Jesus is constantly flipping our upside down world right side up. And so it's actually the world that's upside down, not all of the things that are happening in the church and all of the struggles. And actually all of the struggles show us that this is the place that Jesus intended us to be. We saw last week that the kingdom is three things. It's God's presence among God's people in God's place. In the kingdom of God, it confronts and it subverts the kingdom of the world, which is its own kingdom in itself. And the kingdom of our world is in constant rebellion against God. And as members of God's kingdom, we are rebelling against that rebellion. So it's we who are the, re- the rebels rebelling against the kingdom of the world. In Revelation, at the end of the age, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we know how the story ends, that it's Jesus' kingdom that prevails. And then in our passage this week, as I said, Jesus describes how he'll build that kingdom. And it's not through conquest, but through weakness. It's not through power, but through poverty. It's not through strength, but through humility. And it's, and it's not through an army. It's not through a government. It's not even through a book in itself, but it's through little church communities. These, these messy, 
awkward, this is it kind of communities. That's how Jesus is going to bring about the change in the world. That's how he's ushering the kingdom of God into the world. And so the two things for today in the subversive kingdom of God, the masterpiece is messy. And then number two, death is the way to life. And so this passage is broken up into two main sections. There's eight verses and then eight first verses. And the first section is about this messy masterpiece. And so in verse 13, it says, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so at this point, we are now three years into Jesus' ministry. So all of Matthew leading up to this point is his teaching ministry and his, his healing ministry and his miracles. And, and it began with his birth narrative. But other than that, there's three years of activity leading us to about the middle of the book. And all the four gospels are like this. The whole second half of each gospel book covers about two weeks of time. It's about a week leading up to what's known as Holy Week and then Palm Sunday all the way through the cross and resurrection. And so right now we're actually at the end of Jesus' public ministry and Caesarea Philippi is the northernmost region of Israel. So it's as far north as you can be without actually leaving the nation of Israel. So I've been to the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. Literally, you look across the lake and the woods on the other side and that's Canada. And so that's Caesarea Philippi. It's as far away from Jerusalem as you can be and still be in the Promised Land. And so what we see is that Jesus has led his disciples all the way up here on a sort of spiritual retreat. He's pulled them all the way away from their activities, from the crowds, from the city itself. And what he's doing is he's preparing them. He's, he's basically having the talk. Like this is a talk that he has been thinking about for three years and that his disciples have not had yet to this point. They haven't yet talked directly about his identity, who he is. And so first he says, what, what do other people say that I am? And they name all these prophets, people who can, can gather crowds and, and do incredible things and, and, and kind of generate interest among people. And Jesus just sort of waves all that off. He says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's a question that he asks every single one of us. Who do you say that I am? It's a question that has changed my life. Some of you have heard parts of this story before, but when I was 16, my older brother was 18, and he had just gone off to college a few months earlier and was coming home for a weekend. And we expected him home in the morning, and he, he hadn't come home, and we weren't too worried about it. But around uh, 8 o'clock, we got a phone call from the university hospital here in Columbia saying that he had been in an accident and we needed to get down there. And so to make a, a long story short, and it's hard, I don't want to get too emotional, but we get in the car and we drive just in total silence and in tears down to Columbia. And we were led into one of those little consultation rooms. You know, they're always beige like these walls. It's the worst color ever. Nothing good ever happens in a beige room, I don't think. And, and the doctor came in and just very quickly said the, the accident was fatal. There was nothing we could do. And just like that, Joe was gone. And so in that moment at 16, this, uh, my brother was the closest person in the world to me. And so I, I got out of the room. Uh, it was late at night by this point, and there was a part of the, the hospital floor that was closed for construction. And so I just went in there where I knew nobody could mess with me and I could just be alone and just begin to have a, a, I mean, a complete breakdown. Uh, and in that moment, 
it's the only time I've really experienced this in my life, but I felt the presence of Jesus Christ right in front of me. And it was as real as, as you guys are right now, but he was directly in front of me. And the only thing he said was, who do you say that I am? And it wasn't like a, a, a question on a test. It wasn't, it wasn't an accusation. It was, a, it was words of comfort. It was his way of saying, you, you know who I am. You've been with me for a while. At this point, I've, I had been walking with Christ for a while. I had been baptized when I was 13. I, I understood the faith and, and what it demanded, but it was still mostly a, a faith that I had inherited from my family. It, it really wasn't my own yet. And so it was in that moment that, that I was in the presence of Christ, and, and you might not believe that and whatever, and that's fine, but in the, mo- in the presence of Christ, and he simply asked, who do you say that I am? And I think that's the tone that Jesus is, is taking with his disciples. It's not accusation. It's not a, a question they have to get right necessarily. But he's saying, look, you've been with me for three years. You've heard me teach. You've seen my miracles. You've seen my compassion on the people of Israel. So who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter is the first to respond in verse 16. He says, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. It's interesting that Jesus has waited three years to really pose this question to them, that he's let his relationship with them sink into a certain level. And I think that's important for us to recognize how long the process of spiritual growth takes. And if you're talking with somebody who doesn't believe in Christ, it might be year after year after year before they fully understand and realize who Christ is for us. But when Peter responds, he's always the ringleader of the bunch. He's like Benny the Jet in the sandlot. He's always the first to speak up and everybody follows follows him. But he says, you're the Messiah, the one that Israel has been waiting for for thousands of years. You're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. You're the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the Savior, the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sustainer. You are everything. You are the One. It's Peter that comes out and makes this incredible statement. But it's Jesus' response to Peter that's so powerful in verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In the scriptures, whenever somebody has a direct encounter with the Lord like this, they are completely changed and transformed. And in many cases, they're even given a new identity and a new name. And so Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Saul became Paul, uh, Jacob became Israel. They're renamed and, and given a new purpose in life. And that's exactly what happens here with Simon Peter. The, the name Peter, it's Cephas in Aramaic, and it literally means rock. And he says, on this rock, on this Peter, on this Cephas, I will build my church. And so Peter is the rock of the church. He's the foundation for the church, the foundation for the church for all time. So he is the one and only rock. And so sorry to Dwayne Johnson, there was a rock before you. I think he'll be fine. He's going to be president in a couple years anyways. He's got the main qualification of a president, having a reality TV show. It's a little joke. 
But Peter's, it's interesting that, that Jesus would choose Peter, even though he is the sort of ringleader. Think about Peter and, and the way he, he shows himself throughout the Gospels. Peter is, is the biggest mess of any disciple. He's going to get his very first thing wrong here in just a couple of verses. In a couple of weeks, he's going to disown Jesus three times when people are asking him if he knows him. He fails to stay awake with Jesus in the garden. And then later in the early church, when, when Peter and, and the other apostles were in a dispute, it's Peter that's, that's dead wrong. He, he literally is still a racist, not wanting other nations to experience full inclusion into Christianity. Peter gets so much wrong. And yet Jesus says, this is my rock. This is the one I'm going to build my church on. This is the one who's going to advance the kingdom. And if you look at the scriptures, God is, is almost always doing this. The people he chooses, uh, Noah, Abraham, Judah, David, Solomon, what do they all have in common? They all committed adultery. Think about how many people were murderers. Moses, uh, David again, Samson, all of these folks that we, that we look to, Paul, People that had done such horrific things, we wouldn't let them serve in most of our ministries here. Not, definitely not Trinity kids. And yet when we look at these figures, when I look at them myself, I think if, if God can, can choose and use somebody like that, maybe there's some hope for me. Like if God can use somebody this messed up, if he would build his church on somebody as messy as Peter, then maybe there is something for me. Maybe there is a role for me to play in this kingdom. And the question is, if, if this is who Jesus picks to lead his church, what should we expect in, in our own churches? What types of people should we expect in this, this kind of masterpiece? It's, it's people that don't have it all together. People that are a mess. People that have made incredible mistakes in their life. There should be no perfect churches. A perfect church would not really be a Christian church. And so the masterpiece is messy. The leaders are imperfect. And there's only one hero in the story. And so Jesus' response, I want you to feel the, the full power of this, because this is incredible for us as a church, and especially as a new church. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's a promise. It's, it's, it's a covenant, an unbreakable promise. And he's saying that the church is, is my people. These are the people that are going to carry my name. This is my game plan for changing the world, for bringing redemption into the world after I've gone back to heaven. The church is the masterpiece. It's, it's a force of love directly from Jesus' heart to the world. And it cannot be defeated by Satan, sin, or death. And so it's incredible. We're given a promise of this victory, and we need this truth because especially in church planning, it feels so messy. It feels so stumbling. So much is trial and error, and we're just trying to figure out how to get people here and how to, how to get things right. But as long as our aim is to connect people to Christ and one another, then we can't fail. Think about it, even if Trinity closed, we, had, we would have all still grown through the process and the kingdom of God would have moved forward and that's still not even really failure. In church planning, when your aim is to draw people to, to Christ, there is no failure. And, and when you remove the, the thought or the, the fear of failure, then all of the pressure is off. When you don't have to worry about things going wrong, then you're free to make decisions in a certain way and to follow the Lord in a certain way. Now, I don't think we're close to closing down or anything like that. I've got total confidence in this. Uh, believe it or not, we're actually ahead of the curve in terms of attendance for church planning. 
I talk to people and they're like, you have 45 adults and 75 kids? That's incredible. <laughs> but, but when the pressure is off, then we're, we're free to live without, without the fear of failure. I was coaching my, my son's basketball team. Uh, I coached two teams, but my, my third grader, Joseph, his team is the worst. They are, they are awful. Uh, they know they're awful. Uh, yesterday, we were losing so bad at halftime, they turned the scoreboard off just out of an act of mercy. Uh, and I told the guys at halftime, I gathered them around, it's, you know, seven little knuckleheads. I'm like, guys, we have already lost. We've forfeited. They turned the scoreboard off. There is nothing we can do to win this game. But the good news in that is that we still get to play. We get 20 minutes left. They're going to run the clock. We can go out there and have fun. The pressure is off. So have fun, share the ball, and I want everybody to take one shot in the second half. And believe it or not, I'm sure we lost by even more than we were down at halftime, but they actually had way more fun in the second half because the pressure was off. We've got this one little kid, the one time we gave him the ball, he dribbled backwards away from the rim and then took it in two hands like this and just started shuffling his feet like crazy and then took the ball and chucked it over his head backwards into the stands, like into the bleachers. I'm like, what do you do with that? Nine years old, I've got, there's nothing I can do with that. That's actually kind of funny. But for them, the pressure was off because they knew they lost. For us, hopefully a little bit different, the pressure is off because we know we've already won. The victory is, is secure in Christ Jesus. So for the other team, they're like, we're up a million points or whatever, the scoreboard's off, let's just go out and have fun. And that's our posture. When you know you come out victorious in the end and there's nothing the other side can do to defeat you, it takes the pressure off. And so like we said last week, we, we have the victory. We're, we're playing with house money. We, we have inherited $10 million and a set of gold pants. Amen? <laughs> if you weren't here last week, that's probably odd, but it'll, I don't know. So the question is how? How did Jesus secure this victory? And that's what he's going to get to in the second half of our passage. That it's death that is the way to life. The only way to life is through death. There's this great line in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, it's the same, same moment more or less in this passage where, where Jesus is, is returning towards Jerusalem. So all of his teaching is done, all of his healing is done, all of his major miracles are done. And Luke 9 says, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It's one of my favorite lines because it, it just shows the resolve of Jesus. From now on, I'm going directly to Jerusalem where, where I know what's going to happen, but it must happen. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so that phrase, from, from that time on, it shows that for the rest of his ministry on earth, uh, the cross is, is central to everything he teaches, everything he's working towards, and he says everything, exactly how it's going to take place. He's going to go to Jerusalem, be, be arrested and, and wrongly tried by these exact individuals, that he's going to be killed by execution, put into a grave, and then on the third day he's going to rise again. And so he knew everything that was going to happen because he was in charge of it all. This was the plan from the beginning of the world agreed on by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to redeem us from our sins and to pull us into the kingdom of heaven. 
And this is the good news of Christianity, the gospel that we proclaim. It's the main thing of Christianity that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He set his face on Jerusalem like flint and he would not be moved. He went directly to the cross out of love for every one of us. And he died, was buried, and on the third day rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. It's why I love the Nicene Creed so much. It's one of my favorite things that we do as a church. Now, Peter's first response under his new responsibility, verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So pretty bad start for St. Peter, head of the church. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. It's the equivalent of the kid grabbing the ball and just chucking it backwards into the bleachers. Imagine Jesus is just shaking his head like, I can't, I, there's literally nothing you can do. Like, these are the people, I've got to go with it. The clock's running out, but we'll get through it. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so that was Peter's main problem, human concerns. He responded to the death and resurrection of Jesus in terms of primarily how it affected him and, and his new role. He had no framework for understanding that death had to come before life. And I think for all of us, our primary mode of thinking is in terms of ourselves and in terms of the here and now. Our, our human brains seem hardwired to think about me and right now. Our brains just constantly go to the, the me now thinking. First thing that comes into our minds, it's always me now, and then it takes maturity for us to have the others slash later thought. So we have the me now thought, and then we take a deep breath, and then hopefully you have the others later thought, and then you act. There was this really famous study done decades ago. It was fascinating. Child psychologists took these children. They were three and four years old, and they offered them three pieces of candy, but if you wait two minutes, we'll give you five pieces of candy. And so they took the kids, and they, and they followed them throughout their lives and studied them at different points. And the kids that had actually resisted the three pieces of candy and, and showed some restraint and patience and waited for the five pieces, by their 20s, they had done better in school, gotten into less trouble, had gotten better jobs, and had more stable families. And so literally, as early as three and four, a little bit of patience and restraint can show how a person can grow up in life. And so they, they posited basically that patience and, and a little bit of self-restraint early in life is the best predictor of thriving and flourishing later on. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you how much you have to let go of your, your me now thinking. To follow me, you're going to have to completely lose that. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be lonely and you're going to die. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be if someone gains the whole world yet forfeits their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And so to be a Christ follower is to do two things that, that Peter has done, to confess Jesus as Lord and Messiah, but also to follow him, to follow him in the ways of Jesus, to reject the, the me now mentality that our brains are always in and to think about Christ and his kingdom and eternity. There is no way to Christ and eternal life without hardship, without trials, without persecution. 
But if we try to avoid the pain and the suffering in this life, Jesus says we'll end up losing eternal life. If we try to stay in the, in the me now mode, we'll actually do what's worst for us and worse for our future. In giving up life in this world, we gain life in the world to come. And Jesus gives us an incredible promise in verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so in other words, your best life now from Joel Osteen is the worst possible advice. It's totally unbiblical. Your best life comes later, which is the name of my future bestseller. So I've got that trademarked. Can't steal it. Intellectual property. But your best life will come later in the posture of Christianity. The posture of Christianity is death now and then life later. And it's actually a great way of thinking in just about every aspect of our life. What does it look like to suffer death now so that we might have life later? And so let's close by, by thinking of those spheres of our lives. In our friendship, what does it look like to, to willingly take death now for life later, to put down your own needs and, and desires, to, to, to quickly ask the other person how they're doing before you start with how you're doing, to put their needs first. And that's actually the way to have a great friendship long term. And in marriage and in dating, it's the same way, to put the other person's needs first, to go out of your way to serve them. In the moment, it might feel like death. You might be giving something up dying to something, but in the end, it brings about an incredible relationship. In parenting, which is death all the time, every <laughs> moment of every day, I am told there's life at the end. I haven't experienced yet, so I don't have a lot on that one, but in parenting, I'm told, death now, life later. Think about work. What does it look like to, to do the hard things first? What does it look like to do the things that, that nobody else wants to do? Or what does it look like to, to put your coworkers first, to, to serve other people? Because I promise in the end, that's going to give you incredible relationships and incredible influence. And in our church life, in this strange, messy little church, what can we do to, to do the hard things now, to make the hard decisions now, so that we might flourish and, and grow later on. We've actually, we've been offered several things as a little church plant. It happens to church plants a lot. We've been offered a building somewhere that we would own without paying for, but it's a bad situation. There were gonna be strings attached, hard no. We had another church approach us asking if they, they could like be absorbed into us. They're like, we'll use your building and your name and you guys can be the leaders. We'll just bring all of our people. And so if we wanted to be a lot bigger and have our own building, if that was the goal, we could be there. But none of those things really make a healthy church. They just give you more headaches. We want our growth to be, to be legit, to be strong, to be our relational growth with people. We want to have influence in, in small ways before we have influence in large ways. We want to do the hard things now so that we can flourish and thrive later on. The me now thinking is like the old proverb. It seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And the others slash later thinking it, it seems wrong to us, but in the end it leads to life. It feels like, well, won't people take advantage of us? Or I've tried that before, I've put others first, or I've trusted other people, and I've just been hurt. But apart from that vulnerability, opening ourselves up to pain and to death, there, there is no life. And Jesus is our model for that, the one who became the most vulnerable, going all the way to the cross on our behalf. 
And so what does it look like for us to move out of our comfort zone, to welcome people in, in in all aspects of our lives? The masterpiece is messy. Death now means life later. And all of this shows us that Jesus is bringing his eternal kingdom of God into the world. And he's doing it through one ordinary, regular person at a time, one messy congregation at a time. Let's pray.